Welcome to Daughters of Lorraine, a podcast from your friendly neighborhood Black feminists, exploring the legacies, present, and futures of Black theater. We are your hosts, Leticia Ridley and Jordan Ely. On this podcast, produced for HowlRound Theater Commons, a free and open platform for theater makers worldwide, we discuss Black theater history, conduct interviews with local and national Black theater artists, scholars, and practitioners, and discuss plays by Black playwrights that have our minds buzzing. Kaya Dunn is an intimacy professional, cultural consultant, educator and director, as well as a member of SAG-AFTRA, the performances in over 40 productions in five countries. She specializes in the intersection between intimacy, race, and culture, presenting work in Germany, Australia, and England, as well as the U.S. She is a resident intimacy and cultural consultant for the Folger Shakespeare Theatre in D.C., Associate Faculty at Theatrical Intimacy Education and an Associate Professor at the Carnegie Mellon School of Drama. A few select works include The Best Man, The Final Chapter, The Equalizer with Queen Latifah, American Prophet at Arena Stage, Confederate at the Repertory Theater of St. Louis, Choir Boy at Denver Center in ACT Seattle, Harlem on Amazon, A Strange Loop, and Sugar in Our Wounds at Penumbra Theater. Dunn is a recipient of the Kennedy Center's National Medallion for her work on theater and race. She has published in several journals and books about race and theater, intimacy, including co-authored a chapter in Arden Research Companion to Shakespeare and Contemporary Performance, a chapter on Black American intimacy, and several upcoming chapters on cultural competency. Her proudest work is mothering her three sons, Ian, Zeke, and August. In today's episode, we interview Kaya Dunn about her extensive work in theater, television, and film, and practicing culturally competent intimacy direction. Welcome back to Daughters of Lorraine, episode two. And do we have a treat for you? We have a special guest interview that we've been talking about for a very long time, Jordan, haven't we? I know, we have, we have, we're like, at some point, we have to get this person on the podcast. We are so excited about the work they're doing. And that person is none other than Professor Kaya Dunn. Welcome to the podcast, Kaya. Thank y'all so much. Thank you. <laughs> um, so just to, to start off, um, you know, we, we introduced you in our episode preview, but we'd love to just uh, give you a moment to introduce yourself. Sure. So I um I am an associate professor newly, so I'm still celebrating. Woo, 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 woo. Um, <laughs> um, and I'm the first African American. There's an Afro Peruvian who established this distinction, but I'm the first African American woman to achieve tenure at Carnegie Mellon School of Drama. Um, in a hundred and nine years. First will not be the only for very long and will not be the last. <laughs> we get through those doors and then we bring a bunch of people in. But that was, and um, I was blessed by Tomei and Kyle and Victoria, who was there before I was, but who started laying the groundwork, um, who were the first Black professors tenured there. So I'm a tenure professor, in, and I teach anti-racist and equitable theater practices, um, as well as um, I'm working with the acting program and the directing program. I direct... And I also, um, for the past probably four or five years, um, 
have been working as an intimacy professional. So in television, and um, I've gotten to work on some pretty iconic black projects. So did recently I did Best Man in Harlem. Um, and then for the strike, I got to work with Queen Latifah on The Equalizer. So I've had, I, I have to say that that uh, has been like all of my little black iconic, not little, big black iconic dreams. <laughs> um, and then I do the work in uh, theaters and I've been really blessed to to get to do a lot of different types of work, but especially focusing on the black diasporic experience. I've got two chapters coming out in two books. Um, and so one just got published and it's on culturally competent intimacy choreography. And then I have another that was published in Australia and is now revised and published in the US on the history of Black American intimacy. So that's something I'm really excited about because it combines my former work in women and gender studies and Africana studies and theater and intimacy. So and that work has been a real joy. I've gotten to work with in just some really wonderful rooms, I've gotten to work at historic theaters like Penumbra. Um, I did Strange Loop on Broadway, but also I've worked with Hana Sharif and I'm now the resident intimacy choreographer at the Folger Theater. So I just got off the phone with Tamla um, at Yale and we're about to do Winter's Tale. So it's been it's been a really exciting couple of years. Um, and I'm also the proud mama of three black boys one is a young man he just turned 13 and started high school so yeah I love the work that Garlia does on black parents make plays and the bump festival and then uh, shout out to another black woman Delicia Turner Sonnenberg who founded Moxie Theater also sort of set that pathway as you know black women who are like we're not going to separate our lives from our artistry and mm we can we can have joy and we can have family if that's what you want and it's hard but it's doable um so i'm just really grateful for all of the people that theaters brought in and i also work with um black theater network and the black theater association so i've had i've had sister scholars and cole hodges Pursley and dr monica and Dunu and eunice ferreira um i've been really blessed with the community that theater's given me Wow. I was the whole time you were speaking, I was like, talk, yo, shit. Yes. <laughs> like, wow, you are multi hyphenated everything. Um, and one, I'm just like, how do you do it all? Because you seem to have your hands and everything and not just to have them there, but at a top impactful level. So um, just someone on the outside looking in, looking at your work, looking at all the things that you're doing. One, it's so inspiring, but also it's just so great to watch good things happen to good people. So I just wanna sort of give you your flowers in this moment um, and just thank you for all that you are doing and continuing to do and being a sort of point of connection for for so many people and for young academics like Jordan and myself looking for someone to sort of model in our own career. So I just I just want to start by saying that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We want to go to the beginning, though, right? Like, how did you get into theater? Why theater as a um, artistic form? Who introduced you or how did you sort of fall into this thing that we like to call theater? Um, my mama. 
<laughs> my mother, my mother still loves theater. And she said I was backstage when she was in a, like a community theater production of Greece. She was cha-cha, but she oh. has, she actually has, she doesn't have a ton of my childhood stuff, but she has a doctor's record at three where the doctor was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like an actor, or a lawyer. And they were like, oh, how cute. And then she's like, and then we took you back at like six. And you were like, I'm going to be an actor or a lawyer. And then at 10, you were like, I'm going to be an actor. And she was like, I'm hard headed. So as you were going, I was like, oh, it's so nice that these qualities that drove my teachers and my parents nuts are now useful, right? Like this <laughs> to, to be and know and do all the things. So I, I mean, I, I had community really early. Um, and my mom, we did not have a lot of money growing up, but my mother and my grandmother and my great grandmother, actually, who I was blessed to know for a long time, were all people that the economic circumstances were not our circumstances. Right. So we went to theater. My mom, I think I went to Jesus Christ Superstar in third grade. Um, she took me to the Boston Pops because it was free in the park. Right. Like, so we just had mm -hmm. a lot of exposure. Um, and then when I was I, I am a child, I'm going to age myself, but I'm a child of the first Bush when they decided that we were going to take arts out of the public schools and we were just mm -hmm. going to focus on reading, writing, and arithmetic. So I literally remember the moment our gym classes and arts classes went away in third grade. And so all through school, we didn't have a theater program. Um, and then in high school, my school didn't have a theater program. And so I opened the phone book because I'm old and we had those back then. Uh, I opened the phone book and I found this thing called Young People's Performing Company and we couldn't afford the tuition. So my mother called the director and said, I'll make costumes. I think they were doing The King and I. So she made like 140 costumes and that bought me my tuition for the first year. And then wow. she worked for them for a year. And then Jeffrey Stevens allowed me to teach the younger kids to attend. And that was, I mean, that place, I still have friends that I met when I was 14. And I did that up through 11th grade. And then I got into North Carolina School of the Arts. And that's when I was like, oh, I can go to school and get money for this. And then I like to tell parents I never waitressed. My first two jobs, I had health insurance. Um, I worked with Kaiser Permanente. But the thing that always kept showing up is I always had a passion for partially because of the way I grew up, partially because of who I was. Um, I always had a passion for social justice. So one of my first jobs was touring, doing shows in middle school about race and divorce and, and puberty. And then my second one was working and doing a job with Kaiser Permanente, where we would go in and do sex ed shows for middle schools and then counsel people wow. afterwards. But in the three conservatories I went to, I think I only had two female professors the whole time, maybe three and no people of color. Um, and so for me, I just got through talking to Tamala, um, and I've talked to Karen Ann at the Folger about this too. And we're like, oh, we're the people we wanted. Like, how do we become the people we needed when we were young? And I had, I had some really great professors, um, and I have some people who have loved on me. Um, but I worked with Playwrights Project and that was the first time I had learning and teaching modeled for me in a way that was not frightening, um, and I was like, oh, I'm, and then I kept getting put <laughs> with the kids that other teaching artists couldn't handle or would leave. Right. So I got a lot of kids uh, in juvenile hall. Um, I started working with their homeless and former foster youth. Um, and I really loved it. And I thought, oh, I want to, one, I want better opportunities for my own children. Right. Because I was seeing the economic disparities in schools. Um, and two, 
I know how to do this and I know how to do this in a way I know what didn't work for me. Um, and so that drove me to go back to grad school. Um, and I did have some really wonderful teachers in grad school in Virginia. Um, but when I came out, playwrights called me back and they were doing a show with former foster youth um, at a university. And they said, we know you just got your MFA. We know you're really passionate about foster youth. Would you be interested in coming to Cal State San Marcos? Um, and when I was there, I did that thing that you do when you're hungry. Um, I had had a child in grad school and I was like, hey, if you ever need somebody to do a master class or I need more creds on my CV, um, I didn't get teaching experience in grad school. There was an emergency faculty replacement and I got a call a week and a half before school started. And they said, can you teach Chicano theater, introduction to African-American theater and acting one in a week and a half? And I was like, African-American theater and acting one, yes. Chicano theater I can teach, but not in a week and a half. Here's two other people they can call. <laughs> um, three classes a lot when you've never, and I'd never prepped a syllabus before. Um, but that first year went really, really well. And then I ended up staying for four or five years. Christiane Papier did a conference in Atlanta. Uh, no, she said it was Atlanta. And then we got there and it was like Murrieta. Uh, it was way out. Um, <laughs> had a lot of people from Black Theater Network. And when I went, I presented, we had just done um, Twilight Los Angeles. Um, it was a little bit after Tamir Rice. And what I had done in that show, we had 25 actors. Um, and we'd had some really big breakthroughs in terms of the kids really not liking each other when we started and me learning what silence could do in a classroom and letting them talk through their experiences. And we had some real pivots in the way students looked at themselves and each other in race. And we ended up bringing in a lot of community workers. We brought in religious leaders and arts leaders and um, leaders working on the abolishment of the prison industrial complex. And this was as an adjunct, right? And, and part of the blessing of my first job was I had no idea what I was doing and I had no idea what I should and shouldn't do. And the school wasn't super resourced at the time. So they just let me figure stuff out. Um, and that, I say that was the best PhD program I could have ever had. Dr. Thomas, when I was there was like, you need to be in a tenure track role. Um, I don't, you like, you need to start applying. Um, and so it was a lot of people from Black Theater Network that do what they do. They embraced me. Um, and they started advising me and I got the job at UNC Charlotte and got him and, and then really found uh, research funding, which let me do this thing where I was like, it's great that we have safe spaces um, for queer folk. Like that's important. You know, who's not represented in any of the work that I do? Like, we're not talking about safe spaces for theater students of color. Um, so I started doing that work and then got to go to England and looked at what some of those issues were um, and started writing about consent, got brought on with TIE and then sort of led to all this and and starting my own consulting firm and consulting. And, and I thought when COVID hit, oh, all my research is going out the window because nobody's thinking about race right now. Like everybody's just trying to figure out how we do things on Zoom. And I really, I had, I had six weeks where I thought my work was not going to have a place anymore. Uh, and then, you know, this, I hate when people call it a new moment because it's not. Um, and there's a lot of people who've been doing a lot of work for a long time. Um, but the death of George Floyd, uh, let some people know that race is a thing. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that 
highlighted some of the work I did. And, and for me, that was a moment to really continue to network because one of my big beliefs, um, my career has gone slower because of it, but I think you shout out people in the room and you connect people. And if you keep working ethically, your time will come. Mm. It might not fast, but I think it lasts longer. Thank you. That is, um, I, we always love to hear people's journeys and, and how, like, the ways that theater shows up in our lives is just so varied and diverse and different across so many different artists and scholars. And so thank you for sharing your journey. And something you said about being the person that you needed or wanted at, you know, when you were uh, an emerging professional coming up is reminds me of Toni Morrison. I I just, I love that, you know, becoming the person that you you want or you need or making the thing that you want to see and just in hearing your journey I mean I'm like what is it that you don't do you're an actor you're a director you work in um as intimacy professional now you're a scholar you're a professor you're an advocate right there's so many different hats you're wearing um both in your personal life and in your professional life and one of those that I think that our listeners aren't really probably as familiar with is your work in intimacy, direction, coordination, and and as a professional. And so we'd love to just hear a bit about what is an intimacy professional? What does that look like? And, you know, yeah, what do you do really within this particular emergent field? But, you know, I'm sure that there's, there's a, a longer history there that people are not familiar with. Thank you, Jordan. And it actually stems from <laughs> feminism. Um, so, uh, um, what I will say really quickly, is because if if there is anybody listening who feels like an imposter, I think academia in the Western world is sort of set up for people who have resources. And I think when I went to college, I felt like an outsider. Our school did not have theater. I didn't study Shakespeare before I got to college. So I felt like I was always behind. I thought the things that didn't make sense didn't make sense because there was something wrong with me. And now I realize, well, I understood the culture I was being trained in. They didn't understand me. Right. Mm. So drive in, and this leads to intimacy was the ethos when I was coming up was break you down to build you up. Um, and I was like, but if you don't know a person mm. or their culture, you're just breaking them down. And I think for me, the thing that drives me the most is we've lost so many good artists and scholars. We've lost so many voices that should be present who would make things better because we don't have the people to nurture them, right? And so I've been really blessed in that, who I didn't mention in that list of people I'm grateful for is when I got to UNC Charlotte, I thought I was being a smart a smart ass, right? And so they had a mentorship program and I was like, great, I want a black woman who's made tenure with three kids. <laughs> and the thing about the South, right? And, and this is the tragedy of it right now. And I'm sorry, I know this is going a little bit away from the thing, but the tragedy is all of these laws that are driving so many of us from jobs that we really loved. Mm -hmm. um, the legislature, after asking us to create these classes on race, is now demanding lists of who's teaching, right? They're literally keeping track of us. They're doing things. They're dismantling work. And the research circles that exist in these universities are unparalleled anywhere else. The Black Femme Female Identifying Network at UNC Charlotte, I don't know if I will ever see it, any, including an HBCU, like the way that the Black women there took care of each other. We had an organization called Seeds. I don't even know if UNC Charlotte knows that that's their retention strategy because with all the craziness that went on, 
we stayed with each other. We wrote during the pandemic about black mother schooling. None of us were, uh, none of us were economists, but we were presenting at economic forums um, and talking about here's what the New York times is missing. Um, but I, I said, and, and this is the importance of mentorship too. I said to this mentor that they found for me um, who had three grown children. The first thing she did was introduce me to every other black mother on campus who had a child under two. And those women became my community for the next five years. Mm-hmm. I used to say I can't, I couldn't write. Like I've I've started publishing, but I have a I have a learning disability that didn't get diagnosed till later because I couldn't bring home bad grades, right? And like so many people in our community, that was not a thing. That was a thing that misbehaved kids had, um, and not me. And and so I always said, oh, I'm not good at writing. I did not fit the mold of a traditional academic. I didn't fit the mold of a traditional actor. They were like, if you like all these other things, you don't need to be acting. And these women, when I started writing with them, were like, don't you ever say that again, right? I I said something and it got put into the intro of something we did. I wrote for theater and embodiment and that article got picked up. That's what really got the attention towards like, we might be doing this wrong. Um, I wrote something called Hidden Damage and they created writing circles and they, they would not let me say that I was a bad writer. And they started pointing out and I I needed that in a way that I don't think I could have ever related. And I still, we're, we're all going to see Usher. Um, Like I still, so, um, and I say that because we, we are hyper productive, but we also, those women got me through the pandemic. We created a, um, we wrote about black mother schooling in a book that our former chair published called black women in the Rona. Um, but we also created a graduation ceremony for all of our children on Zoom mm. months after the pandemic started, right? So our babies got their kindergarten graduation. People came out in their robes. We sang the Black National Anthem. Like, and some of our children have been like, the pandemic wasn't that bad. And we were like, because y'all had community. Mm. Mm-hmm. Y'all had. And it was, it was through those communities, because there were multiple of them for me. Um, that I survived that and having those women. And so I just think, you know, if there are young academics out there, find your people and find the women who want you to succeed purely for your success. Um, that will go to Charleston with you after you get through of a year of homeschooling and like while out. <laughs> we watched the chair and went to dinner, but like we got away and we listened to waiting to exhale the whole way down. But it was through those women I started doing work in women and gender studies. It was through that work that I started doing work in women and gender and Africana studies. Um, and so intimacy is making sure that there are boundaries and and any act of simulated sex or physical intimacy is is treated like we're in a work environment, right? So it's the it's the choreography of physical intimacy, but it's also the creation of a boundary culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it's a lot of choreography and a little bit of dramaturgy work. So there's a lot of research. My practice specifically looks at race and intimacy. Um, mm-hmm. There were a lot of people when Me Too became more talked about in popular culture. Everybody thought gender was the key factor in that. And so you had a lot of white intimacy choreographers going into rooms and causing harm and choreographing things. I will not mention the play that I just talked about, but choreographing things in ways that black people, particularly mm-hmm. black female identifying people were going to these plays and going, what the hell just happened? Right. And I was like, oh, we need more people in the room who know what the history. Um, and so an organization, theatrical intimacy education um, with some people I'd worked with before called me 
And they said, hey, we're noticing that everybody who's showing up to our workshops are white women and a few gay white men. We want to offer scholarship. Can we pay you to consult with us? And I want to point that out because they asked to pick my brain in a conversation and they offered to compensate even as a very young company. And when we talked, I said, this is all great, but what are you offering that people of color want? Right? So scholarships, mm -hmm. we love money, but we don't all need money. What are you talking about where consent and boundary and power comes into play with race and ethnicity? Mm -hmm. And they were like, say more. And then they were like, great, can you develop that class for us? Um, and so I started with foundations in race and intimacy. I had been doing some work with Actors' Equity already um, around race and um, theater and doing training workshops for actors and stage managers. That's the other thing I forgot to mention. So that's part of my consulting. And then started really developing workshops on why race was an important factor and the history of how sex has been used in colonization, right? So mm. one of the things I say in all my workshops is intimacy stories are both stories of culture. There's cultural stories and supremacy stories. So they're really beautiful things. Each of us, um, each culture has acts of intimacy, but they are not the same in every culture, right? So um, in my culture, I'll talk about, you know, you might have a woman with a man sitting between her legs or a partner sitting between her legs, and they're cornrowing their hair. That's an act of intimacy that exists in mm -hmm. my culture. Um, some of my South Asian friends, there's the touching of the feet of their elders, right? There's a great study that just came out that talked about, um, it was in the Journal of Psychology. It talked about how Pakistani men living in Norway increased the physical closeness of um, Norwegian men, right? Men who are native Norwegian because there's so much more physical contact among males in Pakistani culture, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we think that all intimacy is the same, when we take a fight approach to intimacy, we actually do some damage, right? Because often when you're thinking about fight choreography, you want to be as realistic as possible. And we're seeing some of that show up on stage. And the thing that my personal ethos is one, realistic sex is often only interesting to the people participating. Like it's not that much fun to watch, sometimes not even to them, right? It's really boring and it's long. And so what we want to do is actually tell the story. What is this physical contact or this intimacy want to tell as a story? But also I'm a woman over 30. I'm a mother. Um, we never get to see ourselves <laughs> as like fully imagined sexual beings. And like, I right. know a lot black mothers, they are coming into their own, the older they get. And so the blessing of something like, um, the best man, which Chelsea Pace, who founded, um, TIE with Laura Ricard invited me along to that one. Um, I joke with her cause she started with, she started with, you know, the best man. Right. And I was like, Absolutely. right. Like it's, <laughs> she, she laughs. Cause she was like, I was just, it was just an introduction. Um, but she, you know, she brought me on that project and, and strange loop, but I met uh, Dana North on that project. Um, and also Dominique, who was a black female executive with three kids at Showtime in the 1980s. And I was like, can I just sit near you? Like, tell me how you did this. But I'm really interested in intimacy is when we change the ways that people see us as intimate, not even people see us, when we change the ways our stories are told about how mm. we're intimate, we actually change futures for people. We change marriage prospects. We change the way we get to see ourselves. And so often the way that Black intimate stories have been told in film in particular has been mm -hmm. either 
interspersing violence. You think about Queen and Slim. You think about Beale Street. Like there was literally 2018 or 2017. Like I got so sick of going to the movies because it was like I went to see a love story. And then in the middle of this passionate, intimate scene, I'm watching somebody get shot. Right. And I was like, this mm-hmm. is like this is now becoming pathological. Or if you will go back and you watch something like Waiting to Exhale, our sex scenes are always made fun of, right? But we don't get to see genuine, intimate humor a lot. Um, And I'm so grateful for projects like Harlem and projects like Best Man, where they really were interested in what it means to show not only sex, but the female point of view, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of things we see, like a woman bouncing on top of a man that is considered sexy and you're like, yeah, that position actually isn't that much fun. It's <laughs> a lot of work. Um, if we're really talking about, you know, and I think the ability to get to have that conversation, the ability mm-hmm. saying, I just got off the phone with Tamla Yale, who's doing um, a winter's tale at the Folger. Um, I got to work with Brandon Durden and Crystal at two river doing wine in the wilderness, um, working with Hannah, Um, And Elizabeth Carter on Confederates, like the rooms and the people and the discussions. um, I did sugar in our wounds at Penumbra, like choir boy with Jamil and and getting to walk into spaces and saying, you know what we don't see with black queer youth? Queer youth are always aged up and over eroticized and black boys don't get to be kids. Can we make this scene fumbly? Can we add some laughter to the scene? So it's going to be Mm. beautiful, but I also want to see I have sons, right? Like sex isn't super coordinated. And this is something intimacy coordinators talk about a lot is the sort of when you cast a 25 year old and you do a sex scene, you're you're not doing anything realistic with what teenage sex is. It's messy and it's fumbly, right? And we can argue that we show more realistic portrayals than we actually have to be realistic and not fetishize young bodies and especially young bodies of color and especially queer young bodies of color. Um, so I've, I've done, I've been blessed to do a lot of work with queer youth. Um, and then a lot of really complicated work, like um, both Confederates and Sugar in Our Wounds. So show sexual assault by white women who appear on stage in the most innocent of costumes and form, right? So playing with the idea of what does it mean to make sure that the audience knows that this is a sexual assault, because even when mm. the to articulate that, because we're not trained to see that. Right. Um, so that's the work I'm interested in. And it's also the work I do. I teach a class called uh, Foundations of Intimacy, Race and Consent, and then a second level course called uh, Intimacy and Race Choreography or Race and Intimacy Choreography, where we talk about not just how you avoid harm, because I think that's the part of EDIA work that everybody runs with, um, but also like what are the assets that mm-hmm. um, when you are culturally competent? The thing that I'm sort of on now is it can't just be about training white people to do the work. Like there has to be more advocacy. Um, Also, like I said before, the basis of consent work comes from a lot of work from Lord and Hooks, like some of the direct things. And so in 2020, um, we actually were convening a conference at Princeton on race and intimacy. And it ended up being virtual because the pandemic, it was one of the first things to get shut down. And we, you know, as I was talking to Chelsea and Laura and Brian Herrera at the McCarter, um, I said, you know, these are, these are black women's ideas. And we came up with the idea that like, I think 80 or 90% of the attendees 
uh, we're black female identifying people. So one of the things I tell people and I tell my students, cause you talk about race and people are like, but disability, but Judaism, but transgender. And it's like, great. there are bodies of color in each of those identities. We don't talk about, when we talk about disability, you are imagining a white body. So mm. let's talk about disability and intimacy, but let's put a black female identifying body. Let's talk about trans issues. Let's put a black Colombian in that, you know, in that representation. Mm -hmm. um, and God bless Ann James because she, you know, she called me before she started intimacy coordinators of color. And she was like, these organizations are excluding us and they're making us jump. And these are things we know. Um, and, you know, I talked to uh, Valerie Clayman Pyle who, who has some issues with the field and rightly so, but she's like, a lot of us have created, I'm a black queer woman. Like we have been creating cultures of consent in our rooms. So one of the things I'm very cognizant of when I go into a space is that I did not create this work. I, mm -hmm. I will say I'm learning. <laughs> I'm learning to overcome my upbringing and claim what I have done because uh, the humbleness has not served me well in this field. <laughs> but I, I was the first person to write about it or offer classes in it. Mm -hmm. um, but, but Black and other directors of color and directors of marginalized groups, for the most part, have many of us have always been thinking about how we create cultures of consent and how we undo mm -hmm. harm because so many of our bodies have been used or our stories have been told in ways that are really problematic and harmful. And for me, a really key point of int intimacy work is recognizing really where this field starts, right? So right. it was used for the first time in 2014, um, but like many things, the codification and commodification of it is not necessarily the start, right? Like there, there are people who benefit from us not, from us thinking certain people invented it, right? Now there are people who like give them their props like Alicia and, and other people. Um, what I appreciate about Laura and Chelsea is they they will say we did not create this, right? Like consent has existed. Mm -hmm. um, but there are people who benefit from the idea that this is a new thing, you know, the same way there were white women mm -hmm. who too, right? Um, but really what's important for me is that when people go in the room and they don't recognize the racial dynamics and they don't recognize right. as I talk about in my classes is hidden white women dynamics, right? One of the earliest forms of a very perverse kind of white American economic feminism, they had slave circles. The way you talk about a quilting circle, these women would get together and talk about breeding their six through 12 year olds, right? And it's a dark history. And it's like, I, because mm -hmm. of my my identity. I have to be aware of how I present in every room I walk into. So right. what I tell like choreographers is I'm not asking you to be ashamed. Um, and I'm not even saying you can never take a job, right? Like clearly that's not an issue because there's a lot of white choreographers on a lot of projects, <laughs> but, but I am saying the way I have to be aware when I walk into most rooms, right? You have to be aware of the history your body has. And it's not just Emmett Till and the whistle. This goes back deep, right? And mm -hmm. we're not talking about, you know, often Southern women are portrayed as victims of the patriarchy, Southern white women. And it's like, no, there, there was a perpetration because you, you lost your land, but you could keep your enslaved people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that was a way that white women built wealth. Um, and if we're not talking about that, if we're just talking about the sisterhood, because the sisterhood can exist, but the sisterhood has to exist on a very truthful level. Um, and the way that you know, the male coordinators I know take care when they're working in a room of young women, they are aware of their bodies. 
people also need to be aware of the identities that they're bringing into a room. I'm aware of my straightness when I work with queer culture. Um, I have mm-hmm. I love Robert Ramirez. My students asked him yesterday, like when, if we have proximity to a culture, if we grew up in a culture, um, so I have a student who's not Chicano, who's another ethnic group, but grew up, you know, deep in South San Diego. Um, like she said, the places and I was Leticia. like, <laughs> oh yeah, no, I lived in Escondido, right? So this is, so you'll know this. This student said El Cajon and National City. And I was like, oh, you know, right? Um, so my my former partner grew up in National City too. And I was like, no, there's no way that you. And what Robert said is the way I look at it is do you have a lifelong investment in these communities, right? Do you have a history of doing work in these communities? That doesn't mean that you're entitled to, but it means if somebody invites you, these are the questions you ask. Do you know what you don't know? And are you willing to grow in that area? Um, And are you okay if people are being themselves in these spaces, right? So when we did Choir Boy, Jamil would while out in tech, right? So in between, (laughs) he got work done. Like I've never seen somebody work so efficiently and so joyfully. But in between, you were hearing Atlanta hip hop through the decades, right? And and to what? And he didn't explain it to people, and people caught on. But there was some discomfort in some of these places we were working at first. And then people were like, "Oh, he's, you know, you're asking eight black men to appear naked on stage in predominantly white spaces. You best make sure that these spaces feel like we mm. have of them. And one of the ways we do that is, I mean." I will tell you this last year and a half, I've never had so much fun during tech. I've had four or five texts that I'm like, I don't want tech to be over. And I never uh, thought it was a theater person, but I never mean, have thought that. <laughs> in Confederates at St. Louis Rep. Um, dear Lord, Wine in the Wilderness at Two River. With Brandon Durden and the teams that he assembles, like the Black women in that room, mm. those creative teams, it was just like introduction to black design history, like the stories and the respect and the love. I was like, I don't ever want tech to be over because there's just, there's a way that people work that I was like, oh, I'm, and Jamil, same thing. I mean, these were joyful processes. Um, Karen Ann too, with our verse in time and Vernice, like um, people built community. Um, and I think I think that is the thing I love most about this role is all the, I'm glad that you all think I have my hand in things. Cause for me, sometimes it feels like I haven't gotten as far as I want to in any of these, in these field, you know, like you want to master them mm-hmm. and um, intimacy is, and, and academia are the two places where it feels like, Oh, all of these experiences, I can actually put them together and they're mm-hmm. all, they all serve me. Um, including like I grew up um, with very strict upbringing And there's a lot of like admirably so very sexually liberated people who do intimacy work. But what my background allows me to do is to look at the understudy who's really hesitant um, and who is afraid that they're not living up to their job and to go, I'm really good at my job and I can make anything look sexy. Show me where your boundaries actually are. Mm. I'll talk to the director and we'll make sure we have something that works for you. Right. Um, Because I know what it is to grow up in that household where we didn't, you know, my mother actually talked about sex pretty openly, but there were very clear rules about what we weren't weren't supposed to do. Um, And another thing that I I think I've been able to do in this role is explain that um, particularly white women, but what they see is and, and some white men, what they see is sexually liberated. They're not taking into account that we had cultures of sexual liberation and we were attacked for them. 
And so often the Black community, sometimes rightly so, is cast as very homophobic or very repressive. And it's like, y'all, whenever we're attacked, we're not presented as human, right? And so while respectability politics doesn't work, it was a protection technique, right? It was it was us trying to protect. And if you don't understand mm-hmm. that, you go in thinking that you are liberal because these people aren't as educated. You know, the same thing in the South. And it's like, this developed because of something. Right? Like This mm-hmm. isn't just how people, this is in response to centuries of colonialism. Um, and, and so for me, like all of these things and, and the drive to keep working is because I can see impact, right? Like it's, even if I don't directly benefit, like I didn't directly benefit in some ways from the work of race in the field because I'm still struggling with SAG and with certification. And there are other people who I think have benefited more from it. But I also know that that 18 year old black boy that goes to college and is in that room for the first time it is less likely that he is going to be hurt by the work. Yeah, just the different ways that we, again, um, need to create intimate spaces, right? Like playing hip hop music, you know, playing Atlanta hip hop music and making sure that, I mean, the work that, for example, like Dominique Mauricio does in all of her productions with having like, here's how I want, here's how you can engage with the work. And, that, and this is something else I forgot to mention. Eunice is doing a book with Lisa about um, justice in the classroom. And, and my chapter in that is using Black pedagogy um, as a way to think about how we train all students. Um, and this was something else I picked up with my colleagues at UNC Charlotte, which was the dean came to us and was like, hey, we're getting, you know, what do we do? Can you do training for the faculty? And I said, instead of having us focus on training white people, you have six black faculty here. Many of us were were newer, right? But who all study black art forms. Can we get together? What I actually said first was, can you give us a year where we don't have to talk to white people and we go do our own work? <laughs> like an Africana art <laughs> studies department. And he was like, no, I can't. But I was, you know, I was like, I'm serious. Like, because it was, I mean, it was in the middle of all of those questions and all of those mm-hmm. faculty meetings and all of that. And I was like, you all don't realize how wearing this is. And it never counts as research. Um, And I had started my own period of discovery, discovering the role my family played in Cape Verdean liberation and why it wasn't talked about and the role the CIA had with the Portuguese secret police. And that was a a sister at Johnson C. Smith, Terza uh, Lima, who um, took me under her wing and Eunice, who was like, hey, you need to come to these Cape Verdean things. And somebody there was like, you need to go interview your family. And it was really hard, right? Like I'm mm-hmm. interviewing and this was, my family would not talk about it. And then I found their names in pamphlets that were like African liberation pamphlets. And I started to read the history and that led me to Emil Carr Cabral, which I also hadn't been able to study. And I started reading Black Liberation Movement and I had gotten flack for using the term decolonization because people said, no, no, that belongs to indigenous people. And I was I've always questioned how we use indigenous because it's like, well, I'm indigenous too. I was taken from the place I am indigenous from, Mm -hmm. but you find the use of decolonization and pan-African liberation thought. And the moment in my, I I was 39 or 40 that I realized, because it was a couple years ago, that the work I do is actually my family's legacy, that I'm not a stranger, that I'm not, you know, I think for many reasons, I'm light-skinned, 
I did not get a PhD. I didn't grow up in an academic setting. I always felt like an outsider. And there was this really profound moment where my great uncle sent me, his wife sent me his documents. Um, and I realized, oh, this is my legacy, right? And I had mm -hmm. my 11 year old son and he said, we're from a family of freedom fighters. And I thought my children can name every Greek God and all of Henry VIII's wives and nobody in their class knows where one of our countries of origin is. Nobody knows where the Cape Verde Islands are. Nobody knows that gas chambers were invented there. That drive to make sure that we're talking about this and we're teaching. And that's what drives, I hate writing, right? I really, I don't, I, I, I admire people who love the act, but Kathy Perkins taught me the importance of making sure that it's documented because otherwise it disappears. And the mm -hmm. fact that many of us see things that are valuable that other people don't. When we had that Black Arts Collective at UNC Charlotte, so it was Chris Berry, a, a dancer, Tamara, who's writing about Ring Shout, um, mm. and Quina DeBose, who is a Black opera singer. Um, we started to look at like all of our, our greatest cultural assets are under people's beds. But when you look at K through 12 Black pedagogy, theories, what they're talking about is reclamation and salvaging and mm -hmm. rest restoration versus breaking someone down. And when we can take that idea, when we can say, you can start with yourself, you don't have to do laughter on the 22nd floor or whatever it is, right? You don't have to do Tennessee Williams. You get to start with you. And from you, we will find you in all of these other works, but you need to know you first. And that's what hasn't been done. There's been a lot of stripping the people's the, the them got trained out of them. One of the things I write about is like, this work isn't for us, right? Like many of us, it is for us, but not just for us. Many of us who are fortunate get this from our families or get this from somewhere. But you all are also teaching your children that they're not good enough unless they produce, which is right. this way of teaching and pedagogy and supremacy culture. We are saying that everybody has inherent value. And the only students I have right now who know that went to, it was interesting when I taught my class about black liberatory pedagogy, the students who were like, oh, nothing about this is unfamiliar is students who went to very elite private schools and boarding schools because they were like, everything was centered around us. Right. And that right. for me was eye-opening. And I was mm -hmm. like, Great. so that's all we're asking for, for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and Tanya Pinkins had me on her podcast to talk about intimacy and, you know, she was pushing back because her podcast is called You Can't Say That. And she has, <laughs> um, I love Tanya. I love Tanya. Um, that is a woman that I'm like, oh, you did this when there was no reward for the work. Um, but one of the things I said to her is like, look, I could never go up to Tom Hanks and grab his balls and violate him and not respect his boundaries. All we are asking for is that that is the case for everybody. There have mm. always been boundaries for certain people. Right. Mm -hmm. So when people talk about, oh, this is ruining the field. And we've now, I was like, no, no, there are certain people I could never do this to, but everybody yeah. else. Right. Um, and so that, that is also an important cultural part of the work. I think we always see the, what we talk about on the podcast, the beginning of conversations at the end of them. And in the spirit of that, we would love for you to share, you know, any resources that our listeners can engage um, around anything that you've discussed today, um, whether that's books, podcasts, articles, anything that, you know, people can continue to have these to, or to see these conversations um, uh, blossom. 
Yeah. So I'm going to shout out some, some dear friends who are also great writers. Um, my girlfriend, Dr. Janica Lewis just published Light and Legacies, the history of, uh, black women's stories. Um, and I really, it's, it's such a beautiful book. Um, she's an English professor who was also the head of women and gender studies. Um, and, and that is a book I love. And then, um, my other, one of my other co-writers, and I want to make sure I get the title of the book, right. Um, because I've been using it a lot. Uh, Dr. Tia Glass, um, Tia Starker Glass has written, um, a book called, I think it's teaching for justice and education. Um, and it's written in a very conversational way. Uh, and so it has like questions at the end of every chapter, but if you are in a classroom, um, I think the original audience that it was conceived for was elementary school teachers, but it's got so much practical advice. Um, Diana Berry's book, sexuality and slavery, uh, and uh, it's Barry and Harris wrote it, um, is excellent, excellent research that's that's rediscovering the histories of enslaved people because we've sort of, they're complex, right? And so, mm -hmm. um, and Bell Hooks Real to Real is, I mean, we talk about foundational um, and all about love. And I, I will say, because I, I didn't have the education I wish I did necessarily growing up. And so Hooks and Lord were always presented to me on this mantle, right? They didn't seem like real people in the way that they were presented. Um, and so I didn't read Hooks until much later. And then I was like, why didn't I have this when I was 18? Like the she writes like you're talking to a girlfriend, right? And I felt such a kinship. Mm -hmm. Um Angela Davis, same thing. Like I got, because of Janica and Tia, I got to have breakfast with her. Um, and, uh, you know, just the, the what, what amazes me about black scholars and activists, black female identifying scholars and activists is their sort of practicality uh, in their work. And they're, for most of them, the way that their work translates into instantly useful and I think it comes from where our research often comes from which mm -hmm. is this agency we do not have time it's not that our work isn't complicated and nuanced but the smartest people can make the most complicated concepts understandable and I think mm -hmm. that's I, I really appreciate about black female scholars um so yeah I just I I think any of are, are sort of the top of my, top of my list. If you're interested, especially if you're interested in something like intimacy, understanding the stories of the people you're writing from. Oh, one more I'll mention Angela C. Powell and no safe spaces, um, about casting and the different types of casting. Um, and if you're like me and you're like, I cannot read a book right now, she has an article that summarizes it. And then also, um, one of my dear mentors, Kathy Perkins, uh, I was looking up Roberta Uno because she's one of my heroes, mm. heroes, and um, I found an interview that she did in 1991, and I played it for my class, and they could not believe it was 1991. Like it is so relevant. I think the NYU archives have it. Look up Roberta Uno, 
interview, but what I did not realize until I played it for the class, because I, you know, when you're prepping notes, you're not fully paying attention. I was like, that voice that's interviewing her, <laughs> Kathy Perkins. Um, mm-hmm. Kathy Perkins interviewing Roberta Uno is one of the most profound things I have ever heard. Um, and then I'll promote, uh, Brooke Haney has a book coming out that I have the black American chapter in, um, Dr. Aisha and her book, uh, intimacy direction or intimacy choreography or intimacy direction for theater. Um, Mm -hmm. that just came out, uh, black women in the Rona. I have the mother schooling chapter in, um, and then Eunice Ferreira's book that's coming out soon about, um, social justice in the classroom and Lisa Biggs. So, so yeah, that should keep you busy for a while. (laughs) Yes. And if I forgot you, I'm sorry. If you're like, (laughs) I'm sorry. Um. (laughs) You have given our listeners one, just a plethora of um, ideas and thoughts to marinate on and also great selection of books that I even am going to check out that I was not familiar mm-hmm. with. Um, but before sure. we sort of go and, you know, let you get on with your busy schedule of directing and acting and intimacy coordinated and being a mother I'm, and I'm all the great things. The bus. That's- <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we would like to ask you, where would you like to be found? How can people continue to sort of uh, follow the work that you're doing? So I have a website that my agent has told me I need to update. Um, so um, I am, I just got signed with Alexander Creatives. So if you are interested when this strike is over, Hopefully by the time this airs, the strike will be over. Um, and these producers, I'm a proud SAG after member, uh, mm-hmm. will give us a due. Um, but if you're looking for um, film and TV, I'm represented by Alexandra Creatives. Um, for theater work, it's kayadun.com. Um, I'm on Instagram under kayadun. Uh, I am, I'm, coming away from the thing that is now known as X, I will find another thing like it. But yeah, Instagram's probably the best social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you're looking to like send a direct email, kayadun.com has a place where you can contact me. Great. Thank Yay. you so much, Kaya. Thank you Thank for you. joining us. This was so awesome. And, and it's always so lovely to me, I remember the first time I, I heard you speak was at Atha. Um, oh. Yeah, so um, so this is a real treat for us. And I know for sure our listeners are going to be so, so thrilled. Oh, thank y'all. It was great hanging out with you. And I'm so proud of you all. Like, I, I remember oh. grad students. It's not like, for me, it's a joy. Like, the whole purpose of this work is to is to make sure that we're here and the and so I sometimes I still feel like a newbie and so it's it is joyful for me to bring people and to and if you ever need anything please let me know because I'm I'm really proud of you. Oh thank you so much.
<laughs> Thank you so much. We will see you all next episode. Woo! <laughs>